Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. Now, this is an episode from the Research in Action mini-series, where I interview a researcher from the Mathematics Education Centre at Loughborough University about their chosen area of interest and the implications for maths teaching and learning. But... Just before we dive into today's episode, a quick word from our lovely sponsors of this series. Cue the fancy music. This Loughborough University mini-series of podcasts is kindly supported by Oxford Revise GCSE Maths. The Oxford Revision Series is designed to be straightforward, visual and accessible to ease the stress of revision, something that's perhaps needed more so this academic year than ever before. Now, I love the way these guides are set out. You've got one topic per page, meaning students can just dip in and get cracking. You've got nine to one grades on every question so students can monitor their progress. And you've got loads of lovely diagrams and visual memory tips to help boost retention. My favourite bits, though, are the Strive for Five and Climb to Nine pages in the Foundation and Higher books because they provide dedicated support for the problem areas identified in examiners' reports. Now, you can save 50%, yep, 50% on Oxford Revised GCSE Maths today with the Revision Guide and Workbook at just £2.50 each. Simply visit Oxford's website at oxfordsecondary.com forward slash Oxford Revised GCSE Maths, and there's a link to that in the show notes page, or speak to your educational consultant who can tell you more. On today's episode, I was lucky enough to speak to Julia Barnmuller. Julia studied psychology in Germany, where she received her PhD in 2018. Julia is a trained dyscalculia therapist, which allows her to both put her theoretical knowledge into practice and to feed research and teaching with questions and input resulting from the work with children, learning therapists, instructors and parents. Now, among other things, in this conversation we spoke about number words in different languages and the impact it can have on students' early grasp of number and place value. And I tell you what, if you thought English was confusing with things like 11 and 12, and of course it is, wait until you hear about German. Then we discussed what are the implications for teachers who teach students for whom English is not their first language with regard to the way these different number systems work. And then we moved on to an area I know very little about, dyscalculia. I'll be back at the end of the show with a few things that I've been thinking about since speaking to Julia, but for now, let's get cracking. So, 
Julia. We start the podcast as we always do with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Um, well, I must say I actually don't have, well, particular feelings towards numbers. So, <laughs> but oh, if don't, I ha- don't, don't yeah, start yeah. like this, Julia. <laughs> come on, come on. <laughs> but if I had to choose one, um, I would probably go for 42 um, because that's the answer to everything. Um, good answer good yeah, answer yeah. well you, you've you've worried me there with no strong feelings <laughs> towards numbers i'm sorry it's, very... it's just like i don't i i'm sorry i don't <laughs> could be a very short interview this we'll see we'll get back on track with number two then uh, what was your favorite what was your favorite topic in maths as a student um so i i don't think i have a specific topic that i like most um i generally think that i enjoyed maths um whenever problems kind of could be solved by applying a clear set of rules or procedures. So when I was fairly confident that I could solve a problem because I had, I knew I had all the tools um, to do it well, in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so maybe like solving equations could be one of, uh, one of the examples um, for that. Nice. Um, fantastic. Fantastic. And then final speed dating question. Uh, what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education and, and research? That's an easy one. Um, <laughs> so I would definitely um, like open a coffee shop and be like a coffee shop owner. I haven't decided where it's probably be in like a bigger city. Um, the shop would be fairly hipstery. So the sofas <laughs> are not overly tidy. Um <laughs> And there would be free coffee refills um, with proper mm. coffee. So no filter coffee or like instant coffee or anything like that. Um, yeah, so basically like a nice place to hang out with different people. That would, yeah. That that sounds absolutely lovely. <laughs> Fantastic, super. Right, Julia, well, um, can you give us a bit of background? Can you just talk us through uh, the steps involved in your career to, from where it all started with you to where you are now? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, So I studied psychology at the University of Tübingen, which is a lovely city in the south of Germany, close to Stuttgart. That might be more familiar to some people. Um, And that's also the city that I was born in. um, So I hadn't made it very far um, till (laughs) then. Um, So and as part of the psychology program, we had to do an internship. And I was very sure that I didn't want to go into clinical psychology. Um, That was kind of clear at the very beginning of my psychology studies. I was more interested in sort of how the brain works and how we process specific types of information. So more on the sort of cognitive end um, of psychology. And I also wanted to go abroad um, for this internship. So one day I walked um, through the Psychological Institute and saw a leaflet at the door of one of my professors and that leaflet said um, that there was an opportunity to do some research internship abroad um, at the University of York. And so I contacted, I contacted um, this professor, went to York for an internship um, with Silke Goebel um, back in 2011. And that was when sort of numerical cognition caught me. Um, so there I started it, still doing it, um, still enjoying it also. Um, came back from that internship and sort of finished my studies in psychology, did a PhD um, at the University of Tübingen Tübingen, um, as well, and at the Knowledge Media Research Centre, where I then also started a postdoc position. Um, And I was lucky that my 
Institute had some funding to support research visits. Um, and since I quite liked my first visit to the UK, I thought, well, let's look for an interesting place to do a lab visit. Um, so I looked at a couple of universities and also cities. Um, and I actually don't remember how, but I ended up um, at the homepage of the Loughborough University. <laughs> and then I saw that um, Iro Sinidudervu, um, whom I've met before at the conference, and also Camilla Gilmore worked there. And so I came over for a lab visit. Um, and I really enjoyed that one. And then later I applied for a lecture position and I started this lecture position at Loughborough University in March this year. Perfect timing. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, but also, that's... sorry. Oh, sorry, go on. No, you go. So one thing I forgot to mention that, but it's also maybe worth mentioning. Um, so probably well, during my PhD, um, and also I really enjoyed sort of the research that I did. I kind of felt the need to um, get a little more insight into the applied side of things, um, which led me to start a training to become a dyscalculia therapist. Um, so, and I did that sort of in parallel to my PhD. And I really enjoyed that and still do think that this um, was a very useful thing to do because it kind of made me look at things um, through a different lens or like take a different perspective yeah that's that's absolutely fascinating that and we're going we're going to obviously dig more into your chosen <laughs> area of research in a few minutes but just just one more question before we get there julia and i ask this yeah. to to all my guests and that is uh, for you to pick a favorite failure so this could be a moment from your research or it could be anything from your professional life but i'm looking for something that didn't go according to plan and crucially what you learned from the experience um that's actually a tricky one because um, I think like a favorite failure um, <laughs> well, implies that yeah there's kind of coming something good out of it I think um, so well I'm gonna go for the um, one that concerns the only published article that has an er um, erratum um, instead of the articles that I'm involved in. Um, it's a very brief erratum. So basically, an erratum is um, a sort of added uh, text to an, an article where something is corrected because something is wrong in an article. Um, and it's a very brief erratum, and actually, none that sort of changes any of the content in this article, really. Um, because what happened was, um, well, we submitted this article, went through the review process, and eventually, it got accepted for publication. And once a paper is accepted, um, the authors have a like last chance to change things um, when they get the proofs of this article. Um, so usually the authors go through that text very thoroughly, um, trying to spot any typos um, and maybe also unwanted changes um, made when the manuscript was sort of typeset. Um, so we did that and made some slight changes um, in a table description. Um, so when the paper got published online, it turned out that the publisher hadn't made the slight changes in the table description, which oh, is not, no. yeah, well, it's, <laughs> and we sort of, um, we had actually pointed out that this needs to be changed in the proofs. Um, so we actually did our job, I'd say. Um, <laughs> and we thought we were off the hook. So we just, you know, we would just let them know that you know they should 
tiny, tiny little things um, in that paper. And then in the online article version, so it's not that it's like printed article or anything, but no, that's, it, it wasn't that easy. Um, so the publisher told us that it's not possible to change something um, in the article um, and that the only way to correct our table description was to write an erratum, um, which would be published alongside the article. Um, and, they also, yeah, <laughs> and they also told, <laughs> they also told us that we had to write an erratum, erratum, right? So we couldn't just let it slide and thought, well, not that important. Um, so we actually, in the end, um, asked sort of a few more emails um, uh um well we wrote this erratum for that table description um so what i learned from this i guess is um that the proofs are really 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 the last chance of changing something <laughs> in an article um it's kind of really set in stone after this right um and well it kind of makes me it still makes me somehow nervous whenever i go through proofs now um because it's like now or never um, and that also even the publisher can't do anything about it so it's just like well um yeah like that, that, that julia is, is that just like a, a general rule in in research publication that once it's is this kind of a, it gets past the point of no return that even if there's a tiny little mistake you can't just change it you've got to do this formal erratum is, is that just like a general rule yeah yeah so if you want to change something in a published article you have to write an erratum. And I think this is a good thing, of course, right? Because, mm. well, mistakes happen or you overlook things. And if it's actually important and if it's not like, you know, the detail in the table description, um, I think it's important um, to sort of correct that mistake in the published literature, um, but also, and then of course, also point to that erratum whenever you refer to an article um, that doesn't, happen too often i think um but yeah so, but it's like i think it's a good possibility to change something that to correct something in the record um which would because things are just out there once they're published um wow that well that's a fascinating insight into the world of erratums there julie i didn't see that coming i like it i like it no i like it right well let's let's move on then to your uh, your chosen area of research what, yes. what are we going to talk about today julia so my sort of the broader field of research is mathematical cognition um which means that i'm interested in the cognitive processes that um support or shape uh, mathematics learning and performance both in children and in adults so um, I look at sort of the younger ones but also the ones that have learned quite a bit already um, and one particular focus of my work is on how different aspects of language influence how we learn and process numerical information um, and here language can kind of refer to a bunch of different linguistic aspects like the lexicon or syntax or uh, uh, something like that, or specific language skills, like phonological skills, for example, um, which might or might not interact um, with sort of specific steps during the acquisition of numerical and mathematical skills, but also um, with processing of numerical information in, in adults. Um, yeah, so, and more specific, maybe, because that was a bit vague, um, I'm I look into how, for example, how the way number words are structured 
in different languages influences how we, for example, learn to write down Arabic digit numbers or compare two numbers um, or do basic arithmetic. Um, and in this number word context, the so-called transparency or rather the lack of transparency of number words plays a crucial role, I would say. Um, so in most Asian languages, um, they have a highly transparent number word system because the structure of the number words corresponds quite closely to the place value structure of the Arabic digit numbers. So the number word 79 in Mandarin um, is 7109, meaning seven times 10 plus nine. So that's a quite close correspondence. Um, however, unfortunately, there are many different examples of less transparent number word systems. Uh, one example is the so-called number word inversion um, that one can find in some languages such as German. There you go, me coming from <laughs> Germany. <laughs> um, or, but also Dutch or Arabic. Um, and in these number word systems, the unit digit is actually named first in two digit numbers, for example. So this is kind of the why it's inverted um, to the order of the tens and units in the Arabic digit notation. So in German, uh, you would say for the number 42, you would say zweiundfiertig, um, which can be translated to two and 40. Um, and while this is sort of true um, for all two digit numbers in German, um, so they are all inverted um, in quite a few languages, um, amongst others also English, you can find inverted number words in the teen number range. So in English, you say um, 13 or not 10-3, for example. Um, yeah, and this is sort of the tiny little details um, that I look into and how basically look at how they affect how we process numbers um, or learn to process numbers. Wow. Okay, you, you've hooked me straight in with this, with this, <laughs> Julia. Um, now, I, I always find that this 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 area of of mathematics fascinating because, as a secondary school teacher, I'm often a little bit ignorant to, to students' early experiences of, of mathematics. And when it, whenever I interview early years teachers um, on the show, I'm always blown away just how students first encounter the concept of of numbers just generally. I remember I spoke to Dr. Helen Williams, and she was saying that. Like students see the number three as a number, as an amount of things, as a concept, and it was just just blowing my mind. So, the fact that yes, the the number words that are used to describe numbers can obviously play an important role in in students' cognition is is, is fascinating. Can I just ask a couple of questions just on based on what you said there? Sure. I'm interested by by the uh, the inverted uh, system, particularly used in Germany. Is that consistent then when you get to three digit numbers? Does it go units, tens, and hundreds, or do, does it does it mix around? Does does it stay consistent? That wouldn't be too easy, wouldn't it? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> So um, for three-digit numbers, you actually start um, with the hundred digit, then you say the unit digit, and then you say the, the tenth digit. So it's wow. 300 for 342, it's 302 and 40. Uh, you see, I really have to think about this because it's <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> usually I have something written down or like, you know, right illustrated uh, so i can't confuse it myself it's really hard to do that with audio only 
you, and does it i mean i'm hoping the answer to this is yes but when you get to the thousands is it um, what, what yeah what, what's it then actually is it yeah well so the re like the inversion appears again for like the ten thousands and thousands so no it's kidding oh, wow okay here we go you, you're on the spot here <laughs> so for uh Fifty-four thousand three hundred and forty-two. It's four and fifty thousand three hundred and two and forty. I hope wow. I didn't mix that one up. But it's like yeah. So it basically you know appears again for like the ten thousands and the thousands position. Um, and that yeah. It, so and that sort of goes through like the whole like also for larger numbers. So it appears again and again um, on certain positions. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, geez. And you mentioned um, Mandarin earlier on. Is that consistent all the way through? That doesn't have any little kind of quirks or twists when you get to larger numbers or anything, does it? Um, this is really fairly consistent. I think the only thing that might be a bit tricky about sort of most Asian languages, not an expert in sort of all the different um, Asian languages, but the only thing that is slightly complicated for these lang- like number word systems is um, the zero because they don't explicitly say zero ten for example so for um, 403 they would also they would say 400 but then not zero ten three so they also skip that ah. part so that's sort of a slightly complicated thing for them i would say and they also commit like these specific errors when they write down numbers um usually when you ask children i would say like um i don't know roughly six years old uh, six seven to write down numbers they commit very language specific errors so in german you would see a lot of inversion related errors right so um for 42 which is 2 and 40 um in german they would write down 24 Right. Yes. So because they just don't do the inversion. And then for languages that don't explicitly name the zero, children would just like skip the zero when they write down the numbers. So you see the, the errors they commit actually mirror how the number words um, are formed in many instances. That is, that is fascinating. And then um, English, is it just the teens that are a bit weird? Um, is it pretty consistent after that or is it does, does it also have quirks? It's pretty consistent. Um, in English, there is a few other tweaks that sort of make children struggle, I suppose. Um, so, for example, <clears throat> if you have the number word 50 compared to 15, mm. that some children would um, confuse. But I think after the um, sort of, yeah, after the teens, English is fairly consistent um, compared to other number word systems anyways. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's tricky, isn't it, like with, the, yeah. with English that... Because yeah, I've got a little boy now and he's he's only, um, how old is he now, 20 months. And I'm just trying to teach him numbers. He don't really have much of a clue. He can repeat like one, two, three, four, five. I'm not too sure he knows what's going on with them. <laughs> but I'm I'm panicking because everything's nice until he gets to 10. And then it's like whenever I start mentioning 11, 12, 13, 14, he's going to get a bit freaked out because it, it, it gets weird early on in English, doesn't it? And then it goes back. Then Once you get to the 20s, you're laughing. You can relax a little bit because there's a bit of consistency there. It's, it's a bit unfortunate that the, the, the yeah. strangeness happens early on if that makes sense really it's really a pity that it happens basically when children sort of first encounter mm. multi-digit numbers that's like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they have to sort of go through that and i think 
well, um, as long as it's sort of consistent afterwards, they usually manage sooner or later, most of them anyways. Um, that is, is, is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I, this, this may be a really stupid question, so apologies here, but what's, <laughs> um, what's, what's, what's kind of the best language in terms of avoiding the, the, the kind of misconceptions, mistakes, and avoiding these, these inconsistencies? Is, is there a clear winner? Um, so when you look at sort of the research that's out there, I would say, yeah, uh, um, these Asian languages that kind of really mirror the place value structure of multi-digit numbers in their number words. They are the clear winner and might be, well, it would actually be a good idea to sort of change all the other number word systems that are somehow weird um, or intransparent to more consistent one. That probably won't happen anytime soon right so, <laughs> um, but yeah that would probably be a good idea because um in the end if the number words basically express um sort of magnitude behind the individual digits that might also foster sort of the understanding of children of like the overall magnitude of a multi-digit yes. numbers um early on um kind of because it's not to individual digits and the value of a digit depends on the position in that sort of in a number right so um but yeah <laughs> yeah because i'm imagining because i i have um, my, on my diagnostic questions website um I, i'm able to pick out the worst answered questions from various topics from hundreds of thousands of students and so on <laughs> when you look when you look at um I only do this um, in terms of terms of English uh, um, mm -hmm. for, for the mathematics questions, but those misconceptions that you've mentioned are fascinating. Like if I if I put a question up that says something like, um, you know, what is this? Uh, I'll put um, I'll put the word forty, like F O R T Y or whatever, and say mm -hmm. what is this in in figures? You're absolutely right. The, the classic misconceptions will be students writing four or fourteen and so on. Very rarely do you get. A misconception where students change the order of the digits round. So if I say what is this word and it's fifty-two, very few students will do twenty-five. And but as you say, you could imagine that misconception sneaking through. In in other languages, it would be much more prevalent because of because of the way the, the number words work. I, I I wonder, Julia, what um because this is really significant, right? As as you mentioned, it's got really big implications in terms of, of place value. What um it. What, what other areas of mathematics does this cause problems in if students haven't quite grasped their their number words early on, if that makes sense? Mm. <clears throat> well, so initially it's kind of about um, transcoding, so translating number words into Arabic digits or the other way around. So they would sort of confuse the digit position when they write down mm. numbers or something like that. But... So thing is that when you go sort of further through elementary school, you will always encounter multi-digit numbers, mm -hmm. right? And <laughs> I mean, usually children um, get the hang of it, right? So most of the children in sort of the first two years of elementary school, I would say, um, they, they learn it and it's not a huge problem and they might make mistakes, but they are not super persistent or something um, mm. for most of the children i would say um but there is also um further research that shows for example for addition or 
um, also for like um, number line placements or something that this inversion principle keeps on sort of influencing um, how numbers are processed. So for example, if you imagine having an addition problem um, with a carry procedure, right? Um, so that's already kind of complicated to do that uh, mentally. And then if you add sort of the complexity of intransparent number word systems, this whole positional thing, <laughs> so where <laughs> to put the tens and the units and where it goes what gets even more complex. Um, and there is actually research out there that um, sort of shows that this, um, that the carry effect, so that's basically the difference between problems that um, include a carry versus problems that don't, that this sort of difference in performance between these two types of problems is larger um, for speakers of an inverted language compared to speakers that don't speak in an inverted language. Um, so generally, I would say these number words or the, no the structure of the number words plays a role throughout different sort of steps in numerical development. Um, and I would also say that the influence um, of these number words might get sort of smaller. So it's not that prevalent once you've you know, mastered sort of the basics or this basic correspondence. But you, even in adults, you still find these traces um, of inverted or specificities in uh, number words uh, when they do like when they process numbers. Um, so it doesn't go away. It's it's going to stick, but it's not going to be as as important um, later on. This is this absolutely fascinating, this Julia. I'm, I'm just thinking as well, just, just going back to some of my past experiences, whenever we've had um, a new student join the school, perhaps they've come from, from Eastern Europe or, or, or something, and they've joined the school midway through the year and they've, they've come into my class, I've never, I've never even considered... The fact that obviously I know that English isn't their first language, but I've never then taken the next step to think, well, what is that? How does their number word system work? Is it is it the same way as ours? Because as you demonstrated yourself as as an expert in this, it must be very difficult going from translating from one number system to another one. You've got to deal with the translations, but then also deal with the the ordering of the digits and and so on and so forth. Is is that a concern whenever? students start learning in a second language if their number systems work in number word systems work in different ways um yes i think that's sort of one scenario where i so while i do sort of fairly cognitive research but i think this is one of the kind of implications for sort of classroom practices it's good to know or think about um these inconsistencies both in english like because that's the language that's probably most dominant um, in the classrooms here right um, but also other languages so if like a child moves from let's say germany um mm. to england right it's just good to know um that they use that the, the structure of the number words is different um, than it is in english um and also it's probably important um, or good to know um from teacher teacher's perspective that um Usually, um, people do maths um, in the language, like in their, either their first language or the language they were taught maths in first. Mm. Like, so I would never like think of doing maths in English. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, well, I don't see even you know if I live here for many many years, I don't see me doing this. 
um, yes. because it's just more complicated. So you stick to sort of the language where you've learned maths in. Um, and that is also sort of good to know because uh, having a child that comes from Germany, moving to England, um, doing maths in German, mentally at least, you don't see that, of course, um, but you will probably see specific um, errors or confusions that really sort of come from this doesn't match between English and German and sort of um, yeah there's differences in the number word structures could imagine uh, seeing that yeah well what can teachers do in that situation because that, that, that's difficult like as I say like I had no, I'd never even considered this until what 10 minutes ago still you, still <laughs> you started telling me about it and I'm thinking it might be the same for, for many listeners out there so if if we've got students in our classrooms that have um, English as an additional language and they're thinking mathematically in terms of um, another language, well, what can teachers do to help or support their, those students? Um, that's a very interesting question. And um, while there is quite a bit of research showing that, you know, it is a problem, um, at least in a certain time window and for, well, it, uh, in certain languages, sort of these inconsistencies in the number word system, there is actually, to my knowledge at least, um, basically no research on what does help. Mm. So that's actually um, sort of one way I really want to go um, to look into this a bit more, uh, a bit more. So what can you actually do about it? Um, and I'm sure, um, and this will, this like upcoming research will certainly involve um, like asking teachers um, on what they actually do and what they think works best. Um, because you could imagine several things, right? Sort of um, trying to point out um, like more explicitly um, what the differences or commonalities are between languages if you have these bilingual contexts. Um, or for children that really struggle, you could think of kind of highlighting what goes together, like in the number word and the Arabic digit. There's a few things that you can think of, um, but I'm not aware of sort of research um, in that area. So That's I think, yeah. <laughs> Again, um, fascinating stuff, and that would be something that'd be super, super useful to teachers just to have something, yeah, yeah practical that they could, they could use in in, in that that instance. Yeah. One more sort of example of um, when I was actually starting to think about this was um, so I was at a um, workshop and a conference for like uh, researchers and practitioners they like um, in Germany two years ago roughly, um, and I was attending a workshop on. Um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and dyscalculia um, and then we somehow ended up talking about number words um, don't know how that happened <laughs> um, and then one one teacher um, actually asked so I have these children um, that they write down the numbers correctly so for 2 and 40 they would actually write down 42 right so they wouldn't commit yep. a transcoding error but what some children do, and I've seen that in a couple of, like, in many instances, actually, they um, sort of reinvert the inversion um, by changing the writing order of the digits. So what children sometimes do is they write down for like two and 40, they write down the two on the unit position 
and then they write down um, the four on the decade position. So right to the to the left. Yes. So that's sort of this. They write down exactly what they hear um, when they hear it. So it's not like writing the four first and then the two, but writing the two first oh, and then the four. Right. right. So and they don't commit an error. So it's still like the proper number, but they just change the order of writing down um, the individual individual digits. And I was thinking like, then we were like, well, is this a good thing? So should we? Yeah. Um, should we sort of tell children to do that because it's sort of helping them or maybe it's like a bad thing because that might lead to even more confusion um, or is something like I did, it's just you know is it a good thing is it a bad thing don't know should we tell more children that struggle to actually use this strategy um, yeah it sort of got me into doing like the first study um, on this topic and that was kind of interesting because we asked um, about 1,000 adults um, to, just to see if adults actually also do this, um, like German-speaking adults. And there is like, I think it's it was like 5 to 7% or something um, of German-speaking adults that also do this sort of reordering principle. And then we looked into whether this might have something to do with um, their working memory capacities. So the mm. fact that they sort of, so the, the ability to kind of um, remember and also manipulate um, information in your memory. Um, and then we saw that actually those um, adults that weren't as good um, as the others in the working memory task, these were the ones um, that were also more likely to do this sort of reinversion strategy. And that's kind of the, um, this idea is also something I kind of want to follow up on in the future um, to kind of really look into is it a good thing is it a bad thing who actually uses this strategy um, and is this like one candidate um, or sort of um, supportive strategy when it comes to these number word inversions um, wow <laughs> this, this this is brilliant, Julia. I wonder, because um, I, again, I'm, I'm aware we haven't talked explicitly about research that, that you yourself are, are carrying out into this. Um, is there anything else that you're actively involved in aside from the the, the kind of study that you've you've just mentioned um, with in regard to this area? Um, I also started looking. So again, towards this sort of more what might help um, idea. I also started looking into this highlighting idea, so highlighting what goes together. Um, but that's also that's still in a very experimental um, sort of stage of things. Um, so basically, the idea is that when I highlight the tens um, in both number word and the Arabic digit, basically show what goes together. Um, that that if influences very basic numerical processing. We're currently looking at this in a number comparison task. So we just ask which number is larger. Um, and then we look at tiny little effect and want to figure out if this highlighting actually changes this more or less automatic pace processing um, of numerical magnitude. Um, but that's a sort of a very first step. And then it would be super interesting to actually um, go into schools, um, do some sort of intervention studies, really looking at, well, is that something that might help um, or not? 
And when you say highlighting there, Julie, can you just give us a, a little example of what, what you're what? talking about when you uh, compare the magnitude? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so it's basically color coloring, like having um, the um, the ten digit in an Arabic number highlighted in orange, <laughs> random color, ah, yes. uh, and also um, in the number word, having the, the number word for it, the tens position highlighted in orange as well. So basically, visually highlighting what goes together so which um which word goes with which digit absolutely got it yeah. got sorry it. Got it. no 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 just trying to picture in my head it's, yeah, yeah. it's yeah it's it's brilliant this it's brilliant um can i ask it so we, we've obviously um got loads of teachers listening to this who, who like me will be absolutely fascinated by this but we'll be also thinking, okay, well, what, what can I do with this to, to help my students? And these might be primary school teachers or it might be secondary school teachers who have got students who are displaying these kind of errors and misconceptions that are perhaps feeding through into um, arithmetic when they're writing out numbers or decimals or, or, or anything like that. Um, any, any, you mentioned highlighting and you've mentioned that, uh, again, that there's research that you would like to do going forward in terms of um, students who have perhaps English as an additional language, what's going to support them. If anything else, Julie, that springs to mind that you think teachers could take away and think, right, I'm going to try this out as a practical strategy to help support my students? Well, again, I think that um, having, I think... Well, I don't have any sort of super easy thing to say there. Sure. <laughs> I guess like, um, yeah, prob- I think it's important to um, make make this like transparency or non-transparency um, sort of, yeah, make it explicit um, and that can go via sort of colouring or by explicitly explaining what is the actual problem, right? So why is doesn't that go together? Why looking into why children commit that particular error, right? So asking children, so why did you? Again, it's always useful to, of course, ask children why they did something the way they did it, right? So why did you write down four and twenty um, as a forty-two? Um, and then just sort of discuss with these uh, with the children um, why that might not be sort of the best way of doing it. Um, because maybe sometimes maybe sometimes it's just um, yeah having a quick discussion about it, and that might um, sort of you know help them out um, already. Do, do you think it's do you think it's worth Julia? I, I'd be interested in your your um, take on this because I, I I I go both ways on this one. Do you think it's worth kind of preempting the misconceptions or mistakes students may have and kind of almost confronting students with them early on before the students themselves make it? So, for example, like the mistake you described there, or inverting the digits or leaving a zero out. Like even bef- you, knowing that students are likely to make these mistakes with with the transparency in the future, would you advise teachers kind of confront that head on and say, okay, here is an example of something somebody might do. Why is it wrong? How would you help them? And so on. Is that a useful thing, or or, or is it better? 
Is, is there a danger there that actually confronting students with these mistakes may actually cause students to think, oh, that's the right way to do it? I, I never know which way to go on mm, this. What, what, yeah, yeah. What, what's, your, what's your take? Um, I think in this case, it's sort of, it might actually be good to just point it out. Um, I mean, don't have to say, well, this is wrong. <laughs> um, sure red sort of like <laughs> yeah. I said and then um it's more like having a, a discussion um I think and maybe also getting the children to realize themselves um that it might not um that how they did it um is not sort of the correct way of doing it. Um I I, I often think that um that sort of pointing children to mistakes um is not always the worst thing. Um, while I also agree that you know it should be should be sensitive and not just you know highlight what they did wrong um, and not highlight um, what they actually um, are already doing quite well. Um, but yeah. And and just just again just just one more on on that point just just so I can get it right in my head. I, I'm thinking more in terms of almost kind of making up an example ahead of time so saying to so during a lesson on on writing number words as as digits or, or vice versa saying to like almost making a deliberate mistake yourself as a teacher a common error that students make and, and saying okay I've done this on the board I think I've got this wrong can anybody explain to me why I've gone this wrong, gone wrong and how and and help me better understand it is it a good idea to do that versus actually just wait until those mistakes appear in the classroom and then tackle them if, if that makes sense i, I don't know if I'm, I'm, mm. I'm being clear there julie i'm just trying to think of, yeah. of the order, ordering to do this because if we know these are common errors is it better to kind of unearth them ourselves before the students make them or wait for the students themselves to make them if that makes sense i think it would be good to do that up front because i i, I could see that um, being very helpful um because it's it's yeah, I think your suggestion is very, very good because it, in the end, it highlights for the children that there is something that doesn't, you know, naturally go together or is not sort of matching very clearly. Um, I wonder, so depending on when you would do that, if you do mm. that at the very beginning, if children yes. would actually get it. <laughs> Some of, yes. I mean, there's like huge variability and sort of knowledge of children beginning of elementary school right so probably some will certainly get it but it's like not sure if all of them would immediately see that something is wrong with this so it's actually um, a nice idea I guess um, to introduce that um, another way um, that might also be interesting not sure whether this is um, again if this is helpful or maybe confuses children even more that's sort of the trade-off here right so this is mm. I think this is something where we have to um, where we have to look into um, it a bit empirically. Um, so you could also think of um, like contrasting um, this inverted number words with sort of non-inverted artificial um, number words. So you could um, introduce the German students, um, or you could also introduce English students um, for teen numbers with sort of more like better number words saying 10 yes. 3 um and i i i, I think this is already and uh, this is also 
uh, bit done, um, sort of, well, trying to make it easier or uh, more understandable to children. So introduce basically um, transparent number words to help them understand the basic concept um, of place value, maybe. So having it similar to these Asian um, languages saying 10-3 for 13 um, or 4-10-2, um, 4-42. I'm just not sure if, um, and that's actually a project that um, Iroxini Dudevu and I want to look at uh, if it gets funded. <laughs> <laughs> um, if it's a good thing or if it confuses um, children even more um, because you then have sort of two different number words systems that kind of go in parallel next to each other. Yes. And I'm not, I'm just not, 100% convinced that this is something that helps <laughs> like in the long run. Not sure. I'm not sure. Um, so it might help in understanding the place value system, like what the principles of the place value system um, or like the magnitude behind the individual digits. Not sure um, if it then... <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of, well, it's just like an additional thing that children would have to yes. sort of understand. And I'm not sure if um, that makes things easier or more complicated, um, or if it's like a good detour um, to, well, yeah, make them learn faster or better or something. I'm not, I'm it, not it's, sure about it. it. It's really interesting, this, Julia. And look, what I'm going to say next, well, possibly is just a load of nonsense so please please forgive me on this but i'm just again as i say i'm just just thinking of my experience trying to teach my little boy to to recognize numbers and count at the moment so at the moment kind of one through to ten are just names of things like he and and eventually he'll hopefully associate five with five objects and seven with seven objects and and so on and so forth but um then when he gets to the teens It'll be the same for a while, like 11 and 12 mm. will, will just be the same as kind of three and four. There'll be no link to anything else. They'll just be words that are associated with numbers of objects. When we get through to the teens, I mean, it starts to make a little bit more sense, like maybe 13 sounds a bit like three, three teen, three mm. ten, and so on. So maybe there's, there's, there's something there. But it, as, as we mentioned before, it's only when we get into the 20s that that kind of logical consistency starts to come into place. So just going back to your idea there, I mean, it's, it sounds... It sounds great, I guess, as long as long, I'm thinking of English speakers here, mm -hmm. as long as kind of, you, you almost don't want students to have heard of things like 13, 11, 12. You want to get them where they just know one to 10 and then you can build from there. It's the difficulty comes when they've, they've also got these strange words that then you've got to almost translate, you know, 12 means 10 and two and so on. It's, it's so difficult, isn't it? Knowing, and this is often the problem I think for teachers, particularly early years teachers, is you don't know their experience before they come to you at age, you know, three, four, five, or whatever. They they could have encountered lots of these words before, none of these words. They've got different conceptions of numbers and so on. It's it's so difficult, isn't it, knowing the best way to approach things, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And you're totally right. So, like, the, the numbers 11 and 12, this is like, they basically, so while 13 does at least somehow acknowledge that there is or it, <laughs> it it yeah it sounds like 
it's sort of that there's part of this number word um, belong to sort of each digit, but yeah. 12 and 11, they are just like new words. Um, they yeah, don't exactly. have anything to do with this place value structure or the digit that are represented. In the end, 11 and 12 are more like the number words for like uh, one to 10, right? So it's one word. Yes, that, exactly. And behind that word, there is a certain um, magnitude, right? So, or like um, a certain number. Yes. Um, but it's not that they reflect the structure of numbers, um, Arabic digit numbers in any way. Um, so yeah, um, they are different, like 11 and 12 are different. Um, and that's the case in like many languages Then you have specific words but for 11 and 12. And then you have the inversion of very sort of various different like various entrance barriers and uh, intransparencies in the teens number range and then after um after 20 it gets often more consistent that's actually very typical for many languages um and it's really unfortunate um yeah but i think like the especially the 12 not so sure about the 11 um has a sort of specific number word um because a dozen kind of was an important quantity that people yes. used to use um, fairly often. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not looking forward to when me and Isaac get up to those numbers. That could be, yeah, that could be quite, quite stressful for us <laughs> trying, to, trying yeah. to explain to him what, where they come from. And well, just 12, yeah. 12 oh, comes from something. It's like, it is a, some form of, um, 10 plus 2 in like a very sort of old English way if I mm. remember correctly so it's not completely random right but what you know how the, the sort of word developed it just doesn't have any close correspondence to you know like 13 or something it doesn't have a correspondence <laughs> so we, to the number yeah um, just just two more questions on this particular bit, Julie, then um, I'd just like to just go off on a slight tangent, if that's all right. Yeah. But just before we do so, um, I asked you before um, what was kind of what you considered to be the, the, the best, for want of a better expression, and number system in order to avoid these inconsistencies and so on. Um, what, what's the worst? I'm, and the more I think about this, English must be pretty bad, right, with this, with, with the fact that the teen numbers are a bit messed up. Is there anything worse than English in order for this early cognition of students? Well, yes. Um, so I think this sort of consistent inversion of number words um, is I think it's even worse than sort of only having it in the teens. <laughs> but right, yeah, even right. that, I mean, yeah. So, well, um, so German is again. You're right. It's like consistent in the sort of inconsistent being inconsistent, yes, right? Yeah. So there's like, well, yeah, I'm not too sure about this one. But there's um, sort of other number word systems where I think it's um, uh, certainly more problematic. So for example, in Basque, um, they have a base 20 number word system, which means wow. they say for 35, they say 20 plus 15. Um, for, <laughs> and then for like 44, they say actually 44. And then for um, 54, they again say 40 plus 14. Yes. So that is something where I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, or um, also in French, there is super nice um, examples where I'm like, who who came up with this? So um, the number word for 96 is basically translated to 42016. So four times 20 plus 16 is 96. Jeez. Yeah, and so that's just not very... <laughs> Very clever, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> well, that well, this is because this is fascinating. This because th- this leads me on to my my kind of final question in this area. Yeah. So I can see how those number systems are potentially really confusing for for students when they're first encountering the concept of number and trying to translate and so on. But I'm thinking now with my kind of secondary school teacher hat on. Um, when I look at some schemes of work or, or curriculums within within mathematics. Often what I see are um, topics where students, English-speaking students, are encouraged to look at different number systems. So I'm thinking of um, the mathematics mastery scheme of work, where in year seven, pretty early on, students are exposed to, I think it's the Indian number system and maybe another number system that that use these kind of different bases and different ways of grouping numbers and so on. And I'm also thinking of topic units involving writing numbers in different bases, base five, base four, and so on almost as a way to get students just to think a little bit harder about number. Now, do you think that is a good idea or, or a bad idea? Because the way it's used is to get students, as I say, to think deeper about number and to compare different number systems to ours. But I guess it assumes that you're comfortable with the way that your own number system works before you start converting. Any thoughts on that, Julia? Um, yeah, I think... I wouldn't necessarily think that um, this um, using a different base or something um, or a different number systems. Um, well, it basically it trains you to use different bases, right? So it's about mm. this sort of well numerical concept that you can have different yes. bases. Um, so actually, it would be. I think it's maybe a nice example to say, well, you know, certain number words actually work like this. Um, so it has this sort of more, maybe a bit more practical relevance. Don't know. <laughs> um, but so one thought that that I was just going to mention is that um, so if you speak a language with a base twenty number word system, um, there is some initial research showing that then you are well better. So you are better at how to sort of formulate that. Um, so in Basque, for example, where you have this base 20 number word system, you are, of course, better in doing particular um, additions that mirror this number word system. Mm. So in that sense, um, although it's fairly confusing at the beginning, um, later on for this sort of particular kind of um, addition problems, you will be better because this is what you constantly do. Um, right? So I guess the number word systems always mirror uh, is always mirrored in the things we, well, we when we write down numbers or when we do arithmetic or something. Um, so you find, well, these parallels in how number words are formed. Um, That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Um, just in our, our, our relatively short time remaining, Julia, if it's all right with you, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, dyscalculia. Mm-hmm. Um, because you mentioned, obviously, it's a, an area of interest that you do you do some work kind of out, almost outside of your, your day-to-day job with it. 
and also it's 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 been an interest of yours for a while. I'll be honest with you, I'm I'm incredibly ignorant when it comes to a dyscalculia. So I wonder if you can just give me and if any of the listeners are also as ignorant, just a bit of a kind of introduction to 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 what it is, um, why why it's important. And again, I'm thinking with with teachers listening kind of what are the signs of it and what can teachers do to help support students if that's possible may i just ask uh ask back quickly <laughs> why are you why 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 would you say you're ignorant um or like why uh, well <laughs> because <laughs> it's one of those i'll be honest with you so my, my background is um, i my first 12 years of teaching i didn't think too much about anything i just taught i taught in the way that felt right the way i'd kind of been told My kids seemed to enjoy things. Everything seemed to be going fine. And it was only when I started interviewing people for my podcast that I started to realize there was a whole world of research out there that I, mm. I had just never, ever come across. So I'd never heard of working memory. I'd never heard of Bjork's work on retrieval. I'd never heard of cognitive loathing. I'd, ne I'd never heard of, even thought about maths anxiety, all these things. And, and dyscalculia fell into that category as well, that I was aware of the concept, but I'd I, had, I just thought it was kind of dyslexia with numbers, if that makes sense. And I mm -hmm. thought, well, I, I don't really know. I don't know how to distinguish a student who just struggles with math versus they struggle for this particular reason. And it's just something that, yeah, I, I think I need to know more about. But I just, for, for purely for my fault, I, I just don't, if that makes sense. And I wonder mm -hmm. whether there are also other teachers listening who are in the same boat. So perhaps if you could just give us a bit of a bit of an overview and the kind of things that you think it's important for teachers to know, that would be super useful, Julie, if that's mm -hmm. possible. Um, so quite generally speaking, um, mm. children with dyscalculia are sort of very different, right? So there is, uh, and they are, don't always struggle with the same things, but one thing is sort of clear, they usually try very hard, um, so they're not lazy. Mm. <laughs> um, yes. um, And they just um, don't seem to be able to grasp, like, um, have a sort of sense of number is what people sometimes say. That's mm. very abstract, isn't it? And I, um, what you often see is um, that they struggle with very, very basic things. Um, so counting is difficult. Counting backwards is... <laughs> or... Um, yes like counting in steps of two or steps of 10 or something like that. That's very tricky. So they often struggle with very early concepts. They also struggle with ordering things or structuring things. Um, and then, of course, they sort of, when writing down numbers, they commit typical errors, not just language related, but for like um, 24, they would, for example, write 204. Right, so because mm. it's, well, so this is this um, sort of early numerical knowledge where they actually already struggle, and then if sort of the basis is not not there or not fully there, it, it just you know since math sort of the, the different sort of um, skills in math built on each other, it just well keeps on getting worse. It doesn't you know on its own get better so this is yes. why it's super important to um like try to find like try to um identify a dyscalculic child as early as possible which is often not the case often they are identified as having like huge um 
problems in math, I don't know, I would say like second, third, fourth grade. And then mm. we're already sort of, it's already, they missed out already quite a lot of this sort of basic skills that they would need. Um, children with dyscalculia often seriously struggle with um, multiplication facts or facts in general, also like um, simple addition facts. They just can't seem to be able to remember them no matter how often they repeat them or something. It's a lot more effortful and they need often a lot more repetitions um, until something sort of sticks in, in their minds. Um, maybe it's also good to know that not every single dyscalculic child has problems with um, arithmetic fact retrieval um, and not every single child with dyscalculia has problems with this sort of number sense or grasping the magnitude of numbers or having a feeling of magnitude. Um, so they might have sort of problems with um, specific aspects um, in sort of with numbers or arithmetic or something. It doesn't have to be all of it at the same time. Mm. Um, also important to know, this calculia often doesn't come on its own. Um, so you often see um, children with comorbidities, which means um, in addition to having like serious problems with math, they also have problems with reading, writing, or um, attention. Um, that's sort of the most typical ones. Um, yeah, and also one important thing to consider um, is sort of, well, emotional, motivational issues. Um, as I said, I don't think, uh, so it's, it's not the case that they, uh, that children with dyscalculia are lazy, um, but if you imagine that you sit down and practice and practice and it doesn't bring you yes. anywhere, that's super frustrating. Um, and, well, also, well, doesn't motivate you to do more maths, right? So often they really, well, don't want to do maths because it's just um, it's just so hard for them. And that, of course, well, makes things worse um, in the worst case, because if they don't continue to practice, um, they won't improve or their performance gets even worse. And then you're in this sort of vicious cycle where, well, one thing leads to the other. You're not good at math. Um, because you're not good at math, you don't want to see numbers or whatever, um, any kind of math task at all, um, which doesn't bring you forward. Um, and then you fall back even more than you already did. Um, I always think of, um, or I think it's helpful to think of um, like the kind of math train um, in the context of this calculia. So the math thing goes on like curriculum goes on. Um, there's new things coming up throughout, you know, weeks and months and school years. Um, and for dyscalculics, it always feels like the train is already left like long ago yes. and they're trying yeah. to catch it, but they, it's really hard to do so because they, it takes them longer to understand things. Um, it takes more time, more practice. Um, and they just, you know, can't get to. And then if you don't know the basis, how would you sort of understand the new thing that's introduced um, today in class? So it's a bit like, um, yeah, 
this this is this is fascinating, Julia. I'm going to ask you an absolutely terrible question now. So please, this is <laughs> this is a sign. This is a sign of my complete ignorance. Um, is there a difference between having dyscalculia and just simply not having the aptitude for mathematics? So, it, to put it bluntly, being just bad at maths, it's just not one of those things that you know. It's not one of your particular strengths. Is is there a difference between the two? Is is dyscalculia? a very kind of specific thing that's that's easy to that, that can be identified versus somebody who just doesn't have an aptitude for mathematics mm. well so in terms of sort of diagnosing this calculia what you would do is um you would do some kind of standardized test right um that would be also an intelligence test and then you would think uh, you could identify areas where that child has particular trouble and you compare it to sort of a um, bigger sample of other children and you would see, well, this child falls, you know, um, or is like in the lows 5%, so it seems to be really serious. Mm. So if a child just, you know, <laughs> is agnostic towards math or like it's just like, doesn't want to, I don't know, it's just not interested in math or something, mm. that child might also perform very badly um, yes. in that test, right? Because, well, just don't want to. <laughs> mm. yes. have no interest. Um, I, I wouldn't say can't um, because I think that might be one of the differences. Um, so children with dyscalculia usually try or are get help um, in trying to get out of this um, sort of problem because they realize mm. they have that problem all right so it, it because it's it numbers don't come easy to them seriously not and they have to sort of put in more effort um, and even if they put in more effort they don't progress much sometimes right so it's this kind of response to an intervention that would also kind of tell you um, yes. if if there is like a serious problem or if it's really just well, aptitude or not being interested or whatever the reason is for sort of um, bad performance. Um, I see. But, I yeah. see. And I, and, I, and I guess the big question, Julia, is, and this may be an impossible mm. one to answer, but I'm, I'm hoping it's not, is how, how can you help students with dyscalculia? Because as you say, this it's often if students are struggling if you can give them some guidance and then say well keep trying then that that that's often <laughs> the way forward you know keep practicing you'll get better but as you say that's that's the problem isn't it that mm -hmm. it's not a lack of effort it's not a lack of willing there's just something not not quite working out right so so how can you how can teachers support students who struggle in this way um so i'm aware that this is um super difficult like in a classroom context right because you not just it's not like this one child where you that you could support and spend like a lot yes. of time helping this one child you have i don't know 20 to 30 not quite sure how big the classrooms are in the uk actually mm. but probably around this right so yeah, many children right. they have sort of they all have most of them um have sort of some kind of um need them or need attention yeah. or something um so 
I think um, in this sort of classroom setting, um, supporting a dyscalculic child always means um, putting in more effort. So it's um, either by kind of um, trying to adapt the, the task that this particular child um, does in a particular lesson, that it's a bit more easy or like fewer tasks or giving more time um, for this particular child um, so that they don't feel as pressured. That's mm. of course also tricky because, um, you know, they, they're they supposed to practice more and I'm giving yes. them sort of, well, um, but it's, um, on the one hand, it's sort of about the content that it would be great if that could sort of fit the level of the child rather than the level of the class or average class level. That would be very nice because then they're sort of in their on the then they can actually um, progress from where they are currently. This is tricky, and that of course applies to in the end all the children in the class. It would yes. Always be nice yes. to have like um, sort of very adaptive task sets where you can say well you work on your level you work on your level um and there is sort of um um pedagogies that do it that way right um so it's in the end sort of um trying to adapt tasks um or timing to the need of an individual child in this case and are there any specific kind of resources or apparatus or anything like that that it would be handy if dyscalculia students had to, to hand? I'm thinking uh, manipulatives or mm. number lines or anything like that. Is there anything in particular that you would advise teachers make available to students if they are struggling in this way? Yeah, manipulatives are usually a good idea. Um, depends on the child. Some children, mm. Some children find them very useful, others not so much. So it depends but if children um, find them useful or if you know, helps them if the, if it helps them to um, I don't know do arithmetic problems or something I don't see why um, they shouldn't use it um, that's me not being a teacher and not being sort of in this uh, in the system where sure well um, but yeah so if they have their manipulatives laying around um, or their number lines or whatever they, whatever this particular child finds most useful, um, that's certainly um, a good idea. Um, thing is then, um, if it comes to assessments, right, it would be, mm. <laughs> yes. if you then take away the manipulatives, that would be really, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, so tricky, but, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh well I, i'll tell you what julia i, I could literally talk to you all day about <laughs> this calculator we're just kind of scratching the surface there but um just to kind of move this conversation towards its close i just want to ask you um just one reflection and then i want to hand over to you for your big three if that's okay mm. so um reflection um one of my favorite questions to ask people is what is an example of something important that you've changed your mind about what, what would you go for there julia that actually um, relates to this calculia, so that was very smooth versus luck, I think. Um, <laughs> so during my studies, like in psychology and also doing research, um, I I was sort of 
always told or is always also convinced that sort of quantitative measures, um, so for example, standardized tests are sort of the gold standard to figuring out if someone is dyscalculic, so if a child has dyscalculia, for example. Um, and I think this is still sort of a, it is of course like a necessary way um, to have sort of a kind of objective measure and to come up with the diagnosis, that's just how it works, right? So for getting a diagnosis, um, there has to be a standardized test result. Um, and that's sort of how this diagnosis process works. And I, this is sort of relevant. But then when I um, was in, in, in the role of like a dyscalculia therapist, I was like, well, they are absolutely useless um, or like... <laughs> coming up with appropriate sort of activities or what uh, the, the starting point for it is the dyscalculia therapy um because for this you actually really need qualitative information so by that i mean you ask children to do various things with numbers um but you also always ask them so why did you do it like this so how how come um how did you come to that result um, mm. to figure out where the problems kind of start um, or where the problems actually are? Um, and I found this sort of most of the standardized um, tests, especially the curricular ones, um, don't give you much on that end. Um, so I really learned to sort of appreciate qualitative um, questioning again. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. And of course, that's very much um, applications for the classroom there. You can, mm. a, a test score will only tell you so much. 70, yeah. 70% on a test, that disguises so much. It, yeah. it often doesn't tell you at all how to help the student in yeah. the specific areas that they've been, been struggling with. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Julia, it's time for me to hand over to you now for your big three. So um, this is your opportunity to choose three websites, blog posts, or whatever it is that you'd like uh, that you recommend listeners check out. And I'll put links to these on the episode show notes page. So what are you going to go for, Julia? Take us through your big three. Yeah, so the first website I want to recommend is the Cambridge Mathematics Espresso page. Um, and they're like an espresso is, and that's a quote from the phone page, a small but intense um, draft of filtered research on mathematics <laughs> education, um, expressly designed with teachers in mind. Um, so basically every month or so, I think, um, research on a specific topic in math education is presented in a fairly short summary um, and usually very nicely illustrated. I think that's... Um, a good thing to have to look at when having a coffee, for example. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, second thing is um, Frontiers for Young Minds, um, which is an open access journal addressed to children. Um, and that's basically a journal where researchers can describe a specific research finding or a concept for children and these articles are then also reviewed by children um, and I must oh, say wow. this way yeah and I must say this was one of the toughest review processes um, I've been through so far so. <laughs> <laughs> but a really interesting experience also and it's actually quite tricky to write for children um, because it's a very different style from what I'm kind of used to writing um, 
usually. So that was really interesting. Um, so that's interesting for maybe teachers, I don't know, but certainly interesting yes, for sort of curious children as well, right? So if you have like a a child that's somehow interested in science or writing or whatever specific topic, um, encourage them <clears throat> encourage them to sort of sign up um, as a as a reviewer for these articles. Um, really cool. Um, and then the last one um, is the bold block, uh, where bold stands for block on learning and development. Um, and this is initiated um, by the Jacobs Foundation. And it's a place where sort of researchers, but also science journalists, um, practitioners, policymakers, um, different bunch of people um, share ideas or opinions um, on various topics in learning and development. That would be my third one. Well, that is an absolutely brilliant selection there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. We had um, Lucy on the show who who compiles the um, espresso. Ah, oh, nice. And okay. yeah, that no, it's 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 a brilliant selection. She, she, that was a good couple of years ago. So it's it's brilliant to remind teachers of those. Again, it's <laughs> it's it's a it's great how they just so quickly you can digest them and then dig deeper if you mm -hmm. need to and the other two i'd never heard of before in my life so i'm i'm excited once i finish this epic day of interviews i'm going to have got any energy <laughs> left i'll be checking out uh, certainly numbers two and three on that list well julie cool. this has been absolutely uh, fascinating um again they are two topics that we've never considered on this podcast and we've done god probably 120 130 episodes now really <laughs> Yeah, and wow. I think there are two two topics that I, I want to revisit at, at some point as well. So that was, yeah, thank you so much for, for giving up your time there, Julie. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you too. Enjoyed it a lot. Thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with Julia Barnmuller. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Uh, this was the first interview in this Research in Action series featuring researchers from Loughborough University's Maths Education Centre. It was the first one I recorded, it was on a Friday morning, and I had five interviews uh, all packed into the day, and Isaac once again had not been sleeping all that well, so I was pretty knackered, but Julia sprung me to life with her insights, particularly uh, first off into these different number, uh, number words in different languages. Now again, forgive my ignorance here, but this is something I, I'd simply never considered. Whenever I teach students for whom English is not their first language, my concern's always been over direct translations. So as long as they know what this word means in English, then we'll be absolutely fine. But stupid me never considered that, of course, if the entire structure of their number system is different, then it's potentially going to lead to a whole load of other problems. So just a few thoughts from me uh, from my conversation with Julia. The first is it prompted me to dive onto my diagnostic questions website and just look at some of the specific nature of the misconceptions students hold with regard to English number words. So I went on to the ED Ultimate Schema work. Now this sounds like a plug, but it's all completely free. Um, and I went onto the quiz Integers Read and Write, and I just looked at some of those questions and, and where students go wrong. So I've got one here. Uh, which of the following is 19 in figures? So the word 19 in figures. And the options are 19, obviously, the right answer, 1-9. But then you've got 9 zero, 9, and 91. Now, the most common misconception there, my instinct would be that maybe it's 90, because it sounds like 19. But in fact, it's 91. It's students 
Again, inverting those digits. Now, what I'm what, what that's made me think is I wonder if any of those students have English as their as their second language. Maybe this is the inversion problem. So I need to get a bit more data there. We don't have it currently on the system. Um, between native English speakers and students for whom English is their second language to see if those misconceptions do change in the way that Julia suggests that they might. Um, another one here, how do you write this number in words? 107, so going back the other way. And this time we've got 107, obviously the right answer. We've got 10, 7, we've got 170, and we've got 17. And this time it's 170 that's the most popular wrong answer. So going from 107 and thinking it means 170, so inverting those last two digits. Now again, is that something coming through with non-native English speakers? So it's, it's really got me thinking now. I just, again, I just kind of assume that students hold misconceptions. I, I've never, and, and that potentially those misconceptions change with age. I've never thought that those misconceptions change with, with language. So that's something that I re I'm absolutely fascinated to, to dig into. And if you've got to, uh, students for whom English is their second language, it's worth, yeah, potentially, if you can, getting to grips with how the, the their number system, their native number system works with regard to number words and just keeping an eye and supporting them with that because that's super useful information to have and it's something that I've, I've never, never used before. Uh, the second thing I just wanted to feed back on is this idea that we spoke about uh, midway through the conversation about how we could potentially use these different number words across different languages for depth. And I mentioned with Julia that I've been doing some work with the Mathematics Mastery Year 7 scheme of work. And just to paint the picture here, oh, I'll tell you what. So I got sent through the scheme of work for Year 7 and I, I was asked to write some diagnostic questions for, for quizzes on it. And they're all available for free on the website. And the first one was like, um, I think it was like something to do with place value or something. So I'm, I'm ready to write all these questions with uh, like 107, what does the seven stand for, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. I'm reading through the scheme of work and I thought, is somebody winding me up here? Because I'm seeing the Mayan number system and I'm seeing this, this, what is this number? And it's got like a shell, a line and a black dot. And I'm like, what the flipping heck is this? But Mathematics Mastery have built in things like the Mayan number system and the Indian number system early on into the year seven scheme of work for the precise reason to get students thinking even harder about place value in the English number system. Because if you can get your head around what these shells and these lines stand for and kind of almost translate them across to, to tens, twenties and so on and so forth, then the theory, in theory, students will have a greater understanding of place value and, and how things work and so on. And um, also in that quiz, I should say, by the way, uh, there are bases. So I've got a question here in front of me. Uh, which number written in base five is the same as 105 and then with a little subscript 10? So, and I'll tell you what, that's the worst answered number in the quiz, which suggests to me, well, two things really, either students aren't being taught the bases or this is a real novel concept to students and they're really struggling with this. But of course, if you can trans translate from base 10 to base five and vice versa and so on, in theory, you've got a re really good understanding of the base 10 number system, what it actually means and it moves you away from just working through things in autopilot. So those two things with regard to number words, both for students who are struggling, thinking are they struggling because this is a completely different number system to what they're used to, but then also once students seem to have grasped it, using different number words and different number systems for greater depth, they're just things that I hadn't really considered until speaking to Julia. So I really liked that. And then the final thing just to reflect on, of course, is, is Julia's interest in dyscalculia. Now, 
again, uh, forgive my ignorance here, but this is just something that I, I've, I've never got to grips with um, as a teacher, and that's completely my fault. But what, what's really interested me in with this, and, and this is a bit of a teaser for what's to come, is so I spoke to Julia first thing in the morning, and then later on in, in the day, and I think this will come out about episode three, something like that, I spoke to one of Julia's colleagues about maths anxiety. And what really interested me, what really got me thinking here was, as a teacher teaching, you know, a class of 30 kids, you've got a kid struggling with, with, with something. You've got to diagnose, are they struggling because they're dyscalculic? Are they struggling because they've got maths anxiety? Are they struggling because it's a lack of effort? Or is it just somebody struggling because this particular concept is, is a, pitched a little bit too high from them for them? And then I started thinking, well, first thing, my first thought was flipping out, that's a nightmare to identify that. But then I started thinking, and, and you will pick up this in, in the conversation later on in the series when we talk about maths anxiety, and does it really matter? Because I think some of the ways that we can respond to, to, to those challenges will help all students, no matter what, their, what, what, what the reasons behind their struggles are. Now, of course, dyscalculia is a very specific issue that, again, I just simply haven't managed to get to grips with. And it was fascinating to hear Julia speak about some of those those warning signs, those triggers that suggest that a student's um, suffering for that, struggling for that reason. But again, some of the techniques that we're going to speak about when we talk about maths anxiety, I think are, are going to work not just for students who are suffering from maths anxiety, but potentially all students, including students who suffer from uh, dyscalculia. So um, there's a little teaser for, for what's to come later on in this series. Anyway, um, all that remains for me to do is thank Julia for giving up her time. A, a big thank you to Colin Foster for helping me organise putting this series together. A massive thank you to um, Oxford for sponsoring this series and allowing this to happen. And thank you to you, my lovely, loyal listeners. Um, if you enjoy this series, the best thing you can do is just spread the word. Um, just share perhaps your favourite episode. Tell a colleague about it. Um, if you want to, you can also like and rate this episode uh, and the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Anyway, um, I've got nine more of these uh, ready to go. And there's some absolute classics coming up. I can't wait to share them with you. So uh, enjoy this one. I hope you did. And I will see you soon. Take care and bye for now.